Welcome to What Healthy Couples Know That You Don't, a podcast dedicated to helping you create the relationship you truly want. And now, here's your host, licensed psychotherapist, Rhoda Mills Summer. And the episode is on dating with the expert, Dr. Solomon. She is a licensed psychologist and teaches at Northwestern. She has a wonderful book called Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Get the Love You Want. Welcome, Dr. Solomon. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. Dating can be very discouraging. Many of my clients have to take periodic breaks because it's so hard to keep at it. What suggestions do you have for my audience that might lighten their burden? It's really understandable that dating can feel like a grind. I think that in part that's amplified right now by the use of technology with dating apps if we want to, we could go on four, five, six dates in a week, right? We can definitely, definitely have a kind of quantity and possibility of trying a bunch of different people for first dates that wasn't possible, in, at, at least at the same rate, uh, pre-phones and pre-apps. And so one thing I want people to be mindful of is what is tracking that level of burnout. So I like that you're saying your clients are, are reporting a sense of burnout and taking a break because that's exactly what I would want people to do. The energy of burnout and the energy of love don't go well together. And um, so stepping, so noticing, you know, some signs of burnout would include kind of that sense of dread, getting dressed for a first date, like here we go again, wearing the same outfit, ordering the same beer, asking the same questions. Those kinds of things are signs of burnout and they're going to worsen burnout. And so the way to remedy that certainly is to pause. But I would be a little bit more nuanced than to just say to stop dating because perhaps it just is take a pause from online dating where there is so much added complexity around managing those micro boundaries about when to text and when to call and how many texts. And there's so much strategy and micro communication that can amplify the burnout. So maybe that pause is about kind of returning to some old fashioned practices like letting friends and siblings know that you are interested in partnership and to kind of um, invite them to set you up if there's somebody interesting in their orbit you know, eye contact on the train, whatever, the gym, all these sort of more natural, organic ways. So I think we can pause online dating without saying I'm completely unavailable, not, you know, on the market, which there may also be times when somebody does want to opt for totally being off the market. But I just want to kind of invite a little bit of nuance in that. And not get cynical in the process. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants connection, chemistry, and love. What makes it so hard to find? What do dating people do to get in their own way that makes dating harder? So I think that what a common thing that gets in dating people's way is super duper understandable given our cultural moment and given the use of technology, which is I think there can be an attitude of I'm going to sit here behind my screen and swipe, swipe, swipe until somebody interesting comes into my orbit. So it's very much like I'm going to stay passive and bring you to me. 
And if that kind of consumer mentality, which P.S., even those of us who aren't in the dating world can fall prey to a consumer mentality because we live in a world that is so transactional, so kind of consumer oriented, that I think we bring a consumer mentality, a sort of like, what have you done for me lately attitude to a number of parts of our lives. So it's not just this is something unique to daters. But the risk there is if that's my attitude and my approach, then when I show up for a first date, I may carry that in and kind of keep myself a bit walled off and wait for you to impress me. And that kind of mindset of are you going to impress me or are you not going to impress me really blocks chemistry. If we think about flipping it the other way around, that also creates a block in chemistry, meaning that if I sit down face-to-face from you and all I can focus on is wondering and obsessing and ruminating on whether or not you are impressed with me, that similarly blocks chemistry between us as well because now I'm really disempowered, right? And I'm not even coding my own experience of what of how I'm feeling in this space with you. All I'm coding is changes in your face and body posture in response to me. And that's also blocking chemistry. So I think that we are, we set ourselves up for chemistry, for being open to chemistry by grounding ourselves on the way in. So whatever the rituals are that help us feel present, energized, curious, open-hearted, and bring that energy into the date with us. And remember that chemistry is about creating something in the space between two people. It's not all my job and it's not all your job. It's a we project from the very, very, very get-go. And P.S., that carries into marriage, a long-term partnership of any kind. It needs to always be, you know, me plus you. Absolutely. An article in the New York Times Magazine on March 17th this year discussed the show Dating Around, which I'm aware you haven't seen. The show suggests on some level that daters are interchangeable. The topics are even the same. Past relationships, kids, priorities. Dating becomes rote and hard. What is it that you would suggest to people that dating people might do differently to spice things up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my gosh, that's, to me, that is something I want all of us to be figuring out. How do we we subvert a culture that's shifting more towards this idea that people are replaceable? Like, that is the most, it's really a quite horrific statement, right? That people are, actually people are, like each of us is a unique story, right? Each of us, this is, um, I know a practice I have developed, like if we have, if we're going through a particularly painful cultural moment when there's those god-awful days after a school shooting or after, you know, all of the, on those days, a practice that I have, um, that I have really clung to perilously on some days is when I move through the world, whether it's, um, whatever, at Starbucks, at the grocery store, going for a walk. And I, I intentionally look at each person I pass as a, like, I really hold their humanity. Like I really take in their humanity. And I really, rather than being on my phone at Starbucks, I try to really like make eye contact with my barista and just really like, remember you are an entire person with stories I will never know, with a family history I won't know, like really grounding myself back into my humanity on those days in which it feels like our humanity is totally at stake. So I think there's a way in which, I mean, that's too dramatically said, but just to remember that 
you that that every dater is a human being and it does not mean that you have to fall in love with each person you sit across the table from. I'm not saying that, but just to kind of bring our basic humanity in with us and to commit to like this idea of like leaving people better than you find them, you know, just like a do no harm sort of an idea so that when I'm with you, I'm not going to go into the bathroom and check my matches. When I'm with you, I'm not going to you know, whatever, text my friends, this is a nightmare. I'm going to, I'm going to do, it may be a very quick beginning, middle, end to our little story, but I will treat it as, as such, as a story, you know? Oh, you just gave me a gift to give to clients about those days with the Christchurch shooting that, and what to do, because I've really struggled and I've had people sobbing about that. And there really is something about recapturing humanity and remembering that. So I, I appreciate that a lot. What if, um, can you explain to my dating audience relational self-awareness and finding your inner compass, which was you talked about today in the workshop I was able to attend with you, and I thought it was really great stuff. Thank you. So my career, I think about my career as a triangle. I have like sort of the three points. The three points are my clinical work. I do lots of um, individual and couple therapy. The other, uh, another point of the triangle is my teaching. So I train graduate students to do couples therapy, and I teach an undergraduate relationship um, education course called Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. And the third corner of the triangle is sort of like speaking and writing and presenting, basically translating academic and clinical work to the outside world. And the thing that holds those three parts of my career together is relational self-awareness. So what I'm most passionate about is working with in, helping individuals understand what they bring in with them into relationships. So the technical definition is relational self-awareness is an ongoing curious and compassionate stance that I take vis-a-vis -vis myself that creates a foundation for healthy, intimate partnership. It's uh, in this, through a relationally self-aware lens, I view every interaction as an opportunity to learn. I view my intimate partnership. For me, it's my 20 plus year marriage. It's a classroom in which I can learn again and again about myself, about commitment, about integrity, about authenticity, whatever, about forgiveness, about apology. There's The syllabus goes on and on in this marriage of ours, things I can learn. And when I, when I approach with that stance, I am empowered because I don't need to make you wrong. I don't need to make me wrong. I can hold more degrees of complexity. So... It's the, you know, the easy way is to, and, and I've got lots of data on my husband. I could give you an alphabetical list or a chronological list of ways in which my husband is at times the bane of my very existence. And that's the easy way to go is sort of that finger pointing. It's far easier to do that than to take a breath and to notice if I'm feeling frustrated with him a question that has to accompany that is what is it about me? What is it stirring in me? What is it reminding me of? What is it pointing me towards in me? It does not mean that I stay silent or that I'm a doormat, but it does mean that along that, that I take the trigger of him and and keep myself in the ring. What is it about what is it about me? And oftentimes, side note, oftentimes whatever I'm wanting to be critical of in him is something I'm reckoning with in my own self. Oftentimes, if I've had a day where I have been rather self-critical, I am much more likely 
to be on him and to be critical of him. And so it's, again, that reminder just, and it's not like, it's not an airy fairy, like affirmation. I'm a badass. It's not that it's just holding on to a kind of humility that comes from, from being self, being curious about what is this moment stirring in me? And that starts from the first text. So we are these like meaning-making creatures, and it happens so quickly. So even before two people have met, if they're communicating back and forth, if I want to, I can drive myself and my friends around me crazy by adding meaning upon meaning to the fact that it took you 17 minutes to respond to my text. And my text had five lines and your text had two lines. And if I want to, I can make an entire narrative about how that means you think you're hot stuff and you think I should be grateful to get a chance to go out with you. And you, and can I be humble enough to say, oh, this is what I do. This is what I do in moments of uncertainty. I make it a power play or I'm convinced I'm going to be abandoned. And that, that kind of recognition that I bring my patterns into all my interactions and that I'm a meaning-making creature and that I can just breathe into, I don't know. I don't know what this means. I've got some hypotheses that will need to be tested (laughs) with time. (laughs) That's absolutely true. What advice do you have for daters who are only the only single person in their friend group? Because I know that can be really difficult. Yeah. I I think a lot about group dynamics and this is a group dynamic. So I want my advice to the single person among let's say it's a she among her um partnered crew is I just I want her to be mindful of where her boundaries are. Um one of the things that can happen is that we, you know, we tend to be rather itchy creatures. Those of us who are partnered, sometimes we can get a little wistful about the single days. Those of us who are single can sometimes get craving about partnership. There's sort of a way in which we, the essence of being human is we have to just like sit in these paradoxes that are just us, you know, we're complicated creatures. So if she's got this whole crew of married or partnered people, they may love when she shows up to work on Monday morning with a story about a date. And what I want her to know is that if that delights her, like if she really delights in telling her story, then she should tell her story and have all of the kind of uh, connection that comes from, from that whole process. But I want her to be mindful that it's hers, it's not theirs, it's not under any obligation. And I want her to notice how it feels afterwards because it may be that their reactions skew her experience and it may be that she feels a pressure to perform the story. And then, and then you know, the, the energy of building an intimate partnership is rather different than the energy of connecting with friends. And so if she becomes aware that actually turning her dates into jokes or turning her dates into stories may make her more cynical we're talking about cynicism before may make her feel like she has to be this way um and so i would just want her to be mindful of that and she may need to kind of work on her boundaries of what she shares with her group of friends and what she doesn't share yeah that makes a lot of sense it really does Dating with integrity is something that you talk a lot about. Could you say more about what that means? So dating with integrity to me is about aligning your values, your beliefs, your thoughts, your actions, and then your behaviors. And so sometimes, so 
So sometimes the relational self-awareness work is understanding what your values are, especially for those of us, you know, um, when we think about development, 18 to 25 years of life is when we do what we call differentiation, you know, differentiating from our family, figuring out who I, who am I versus who is my family. Our, our values, um, we are given oftentimes either explicitly or implicitly a set of values from our family, from our religious institutions, from our schools. And it may be that that set of values, we are going to swallow it wholeheartedly. It works perfectly for us. But for many, many of us, there's a sorting process of what is it I want to keep from my family of origin? What do I want to shed? What do I want to replace that with? And so that whole writing and editing and cultivating of like, what is my compass north? What grounds me? What, how do, and how do I know when I'm in my integrity? Meaning when I'm making choices that leave me feeling good about myself and, and I can look myself in the mirror and feel comfortable and at ease, that's really, um, it's really an important process. So dating with integrity is, um, making choices that, that where you can kind of stand in a comfortable sense of who you are. Um, and it can be difficult, you know, we talk a lot about the, you know, dating world is gruesome and it's so not, it's so rough out there. And yes, and it's a yes, and yes, and the dating world is full of people who are just trying to do their best. And so it is really important to figure out what's the support that I need in order to move through the world, kind of following the golden rule, right? Doing unto others as I would have them do unto me, like that sort of Rather than a race to the bottom of sort of who can care less or who can be less vulnerable, I, if, and it doesn't, you don't have to have integrity because anybody else deserves it. Have integrity because you deserve it. You deserve to experience yourself as courageous. You deserve to experience yourself as, um, as like watching yourself behave with maturity and care grows us. Like it just grows us, you know? Relationships are a people-growing machine. David <laughs> Schnark said that. I really like that. Um, if someone is ambivalent between two people, what would help them decide? And w- any observations you have about ambivalence? Mm-hmm. It's so pro- such a part of our culture to be confused about people. Yes, ambivalence is, I think, one of the ri- – sometimes ambivalence – is well-founded, and it's because there are red flags that need our attention. Some of the red flags that I particularly key into are things like untreated addiction, patterns of lying. Um, And I say untreated addiction because people who are in recovery from addictions can be some of the most amazing partners. People who are in recovery of mental illness, oh my gosh, people who used to lie but have learned to find their integrity, like hold on to those people. That, that, those are beautiful partnerships with people who have had that dark night of the soul and have learned what it takes to live with with grace and awareness. So it's all about, so if those are patterns that somebody has a ton of rigidity around, doesn't want to look at, defensiveness, and then sort of contempt for internal work, those are some of the red flags I think of. So sometimes a person is ambivalent because there are legit problematic things. But ambivalence is also part of being human. I can love my husband and not like him at the very same time. I can be grateful for my children and enjoy some time away from them at the very same time. Like one doesn't destroy the other. 
So part of um, part of the lesson of ambivalence is that it, invi- it invites us to hold it, to hold ambivalence, to be resilient in the face of ambivalence, and to not necessarily. I think the risk of amb- the risk of feeling ambivalent, like I don't know if I want to get to know this person better, I don't know if they're quote unquote right for me. The risk is that you take that ambivalence and attach to it a story that sounds like this. My ambivalence means that they aren't right for me. Because when you know, you know. (laughs) I think some of us know when we know, but some of us need to (laughs) obsess and ruminate and make charts and graphs. (laughs) And I, and that's, um, so that's what I would want to say about that. Could you share more about your point of view that we expect a lot from love today and how it contributes to expanded ambivalence? Yes. We, um, it's, it's both beautiful and challenging at the very same time that our expectations of love are higher, bigger, deeper, richer than ever before. We, um, we've moved from sort of a, a role-to-role connection to a soul-to-soul connection. That's what, that's what the vast majority of us want. It used to be that intimate partnership was rather like plug and play. You know, you found like I am the wife, you are the husband, and we know the behaviors, expectations, roles, perf- you know, we know what each of those roles entails. And I, and I intentionally say husband and wife because our former models were incredibly heteronormative and heterosexist. And so we have moved for all kinds of reasons um, to a model where I mean, the way we live is that you and I are even having this conversation, right? Like that, we, that the self is an ongoing project. We cultivate and curate a sense of self over time in a way that our ancestors wouldn't really understand what we were up to. You know, um, so we so we want and we want to create partnerships where we're seen. Like, where do you really see the authentic me? And do I know the authentic me? So I'm cultivating my authentic me. I want you to see my authentic me. This is very different than as the husband you X Y and Z, and as the wife I A B and C. It's very very different. So it makes sense that as we expect more, there are just more things that we can twist and turn about like is this right and going back to your question about the partner a versus partner b it may be that partner a brings in there's incredible sexual chemistry and i like their family but i've got some concerns about you know how we might co-parent and partner b there's not quite as much chemistry all these kinds of like domains on which we can analyze there's a beauty in that but there's also it's a bandwidth issue it just takes a lot of lot of um strain a lot of it takes a lot of bandwidth to sort all this stuff through versus just kind of partnering up with the boy next door or the girl next door yeah that's for sure could you talk about the filters that are branches we grab onto when we're swimming in ambivalence mm-hmm. yeah so when we are unsure do i want to invest more in this relationship or do i not we can look for things to kind of anchor us. And a, an easy one is around gender, like gender role expectations. So there's, the research is clear that there's no, there's no domain of life in which we bring rigid 
binary and sort of played out gender role expectations the way we do to dating an intimate partnership. It's really, really easy to project onto, especially the dating world, a man should blah, 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 blah. A woman should blah, 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 blah. And by the way, I'm saying it in heterosexual terms because it is so binary and it's so rigid, but it also, because of its prevalence and its stuckness, it gets sort of transposed many times into the LGBTQ plus community as well in terms of this one should lead and this one should follow. This one should pay and this one shouldn't pay. This one should take the lead on defining how committed we are and this one shouldn't. Um, and so that's what it is. So the, so the, the binary is around um, which person is authorized to say, here's who we are to each other. This, which person is allowed to initiate whatever, a kiss, sex, um, commitment, um, and those, and when it's a heterosexual couple, it's really easy to heap one role onto the male body and one role onto the female body. And so sometimes we will, we will confuse, well, they aren't, they are not, the filter becomes, they don't fit my definition of what a man should be. And so that makes part of a rule out. This is, I, I tell the story. My, oh, I was just going to say, because they won't pick up the check is the big one that I've heard a lot from yes. people on a first date. Because they won't pick up the check because they didn't hold the door open for me. And maybe that, maybe that really, really does truly mean this would be an awful person to bring into your life. But maybe it means that you just, there's a difference between you guys at this moment in time around how you carry that gender narrative and and maybe it doesn't mean more than that. And maybe it means that this is an invitation for you to step into voice and say, actually, I'm not comfortable splitting the check. I have a more traditional gendered model than you do potentially. And my expectation is that you, whatever it is, right. to just yes. put that on the table. Yes, own it. And my last question, would you suggest a couple of self-aware dating strategies so that people can learn a little more about how to check in with themselves? Yes, I, um, I've been collecting these self-aware dating tips um, because I think they're, they, they are important. So the, the big one that I think is really, really important is to put your swiping on stimulus control, which means that um, it, which means using your apps um, at, at, like almost like creating a ritual around when you do it. So I think it's because our phones are always in our hands or accessible to us, we could possibly be swiping in line at Trader Joe's, um, you know, while we're walking from work to our car. We could be swiping then. I would invite or challenge those who are dating to create a little bit more ritual around it because what we are doing, even if we're only swiping for casual, no-strings-attached sex, we're still diving into this ancient, sacred, powerful, potent alchemy of sex and like chemistry and potentially love and commitment and partnership. So it's some big, like it's some big stuff that we're tapping into. And it warrants, I think, a kind of reverence. And so so I would invite people to consider, you know, it whatever. I swipe at seven PM after dinner, you know, with a glass of wine on my porch, whatever the ritual looks like for you. So there's a kind of like intentionality to it. That's a big one. Um, another one is to um, 
do a little like before, during, after a first date. Like notice how you feel before, notice how you feel during, and then how you feel after. And to kind of come home and savor and integrate the experience a bit before you share it with your tribe. Because your tribe doesn't listen with neutral ears and they may, their voices may become louder than your own voice. Um, I think especially those of us who are socialized as women, we're used to kind of listening ourselves and each other into voice and into clarity. And sometimes it's, it can be really helpful to kind of figure out how I feel first before I start to talk to you about what happened. Yeah, I think that's a great point. People really do um, listen. They get contaminated by other people's voices. Um, Thank you so much for being on my show today, Dr. Solomon. And please go out, get her book, Loving Bravely. It's really very, very helpful. And thanks for listening today. Thank you for listening to What Healthy Couples Know That You Don't. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes and help get the word out. To learn more or connect with Rhoda, visit therapyideas.net.